0: Hello everyone. This is Anthony Harris again. I think everybody knows my name by now. My daughter told me that it, I did not need to keep mentioning my name, but I just a habit for those who may be tuning in for the first time to introduce myself as Anthony Middle initial J Harris and last episode I was sharing some stories about my life uh, in Commerce, Texas where I lived and worked for 25-30 years. Really enjoyed it living in that town and shared some stories about some incidents of racism and how I dealt with that and that was that was one of those times when I was in in commerce and and I had flashbacks to living in Mississippi because moving from Hattiesburg, Mississippi to Commerce, Texas and in some respects I guess I was a little naive thinking that moving to another college town was going to be uh, more progressive and maybe more, uh, just a more place that I would like to live that would fit with my values and my family values. And in some respects, commerce did represent that. And before I really get into, uh, there was a story that I wanted to share with you, but failed to mention it in the previous episode. I want to get to that in just a moment. But before I do that, I I really need to say one more time, uh, we're about two weeks before the election on November 3rd and as I usually like to do is to encourage you to make sure you vote. Uh, if you early vote y'all know if, if you prefer to early vote please do that. If you want to vote by mail figure out what the rules are for your particular location and do that. No matter what it takes you have to vote because this election means so much to this country. It means so much to our community and if you've been paying attention the last four years, you will certainly recognize and, and hopefully you will uh, see the chaos and the nightmares that have been going on in our country, the divisiveness and the, just a breakdown in, in so many of the institutions uh, uh, that have sort of kept this country together. And I think those, those institutions and the, the guardrails that have been up to protect those institutions are in peril right now. And if we aren't careful, we could see those guardrails go away. So I want to um, encourage you, beg, grovel, whatever I have to do, please go vote. Either early vote or vote on the day of. My wife and I voted the first day we were able to early vote here in Montgomery County, Texas. And the line was long, but we got through it. I think wherever we, uh, I've heard people talk about wherever they voted, the lines have been long. but. People's resolve is is stronger than any kind of uh, concern or fears about being in a long line. But I want to go now back to a story that I failed to mention uh, in my talk about commerce. And it involved my daughter, Ashley. And Ashley was in daycare. I worked, my wife worked outside the home, so we, we needed daycare and we found a really, really Marvelous person, uh, Miss Janine Tally, to take care of our kids, and and we just had so much trust and faith in her. Our routine was when Ashley would go to um, the preschool on campus. I would pick her up and take her to Mrs. Tally's for uh, for the rest of the evening until uh, work was finished. On this one particular day, I went to pick her up from from preschool to take her to daycare, and. And Ashley's countenance was low. She was not in a very happy mood. She, in fact, she was, she was pretty silent. She was not as excited to see me as she would normally be. We would always greet each other with a big hug, and we would talk about how, how her day went and how it was going. And she was always so engaging and very talkative uh, when, when I would take her to, uh, to daycare. But on this particular day, as I said, she was not doing any of that. And I tried to coax out of her what's going on, and she didn't want to talk about it. So when we got home that evening, uh, she she finally asked, I finally asked her, sweetheart, why, what, what was wrong with you today? Why didn't you want to talk? And she finally admitted, she said, Dad, I don't want to be black anymore. Now, my wife was standing next to me, and she gave me that look like, okay, you're the civil rights guy. You better handle this one. And it really, really stunned me and hurt me that she would say that. But this is a child who's like five years old, five five or six years old. And the only thing that she could see in her little mind was that one of her best friends, a little white kid who told her that he did not want to play with her anymore because he doesn't like black people or was told that he should not play with black people. And it hurt her because again, this this young guy was 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 her playmate. They went to daycare together. They just, they really were 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 really good pals, if you will, at that age. And it just it just broke her heart. And I could see that little those clouds of doubt starting to form in her, in her mind. That that doubt about who she is as a as a black child. I could see her starting to have some self loathing and some self self hatred, if you will. Because she she did not want to be black because to do so would mean that she would lose uh, the companionship and the friendship of her her friend. So I had to really dig down deep inside and figure out how do I react to this? You know, I, this is a this is a very teachable moment, it's a poignant moment. It's a critical moment in my child's life, and I need to be able to handle this in a way that's going to uh, strengthen her uh, self-esteem and and not allow her to get wrapped up in someone else's um, negative, racist thoughts about her. So I I, I had this this conversation with her about, you know, sweetheart, you, you have beautiful, beautiful brown skin, and God made you that way. God made all of us so different. We all have different hair. We have different noses. We have different eyes. All of the parts of our body are different because God wanted everybody to be different, and he wanted you to be different. And, and beside, it, it's not what's on the outside that God likes. It's what's on the inside. And the inside is, is you're a friendly person, you're a loving person, you're fun, you're funny, you're smart. You, all those things are what's on the inside. And that's what your, your family, your parents, your, your brothers, your sisters, your grandparents, and, and that's what God likes about you. That's what God appreciates about you, the fact that you have these, these great qualities. And if, and if this little guy doesn't want to be your friend, that's his loss. That's that's his loss because what he's losing is a is a really good friend, and I, I thought about as I was talking to him, to her about this how many other black parents have had to have had to have that conversation with their black child and I discovered later that quite a few black parents have had to have have had to have that talk with their black child whether it's a um, boy or girl, and because in in that environment where kids can just say some things because they are parenting what they've heard from their parents, and they, they start to internalize those things, and before you know it, you, you've got some problems there, so I, I just felt it was really, very important to, to head this off at the pass and, and not let it get any further, and I think I was successful with that because she understood that, um, again, it's what's on the inside that really counts, and and after I spent that time with her, I could tell she was getting better. She was she had stopped crying and and she skipped down the hallway to her bedroom to go play with her dolls. and And that's when my wife and I realized that one of the things that we needed to do was to reinforce in our children the the pride in their heritage and the pride in their in their blackness. So uh, from that point on, we we surrounded our children with with black dolls and black oriented toys, and we hung a lot of black art on our walls because I wanted my children to see very uh, much that they could, that, they, that the strength and the beauty of being black, uh, whether it's through a doll or through a, a painting or through a book or through poetry, whatever it happens to be, that's something we intentionally did to make sure that our children uh, did not allow that, that racist thought about they are not good enough because of their race uh, we wanted them to believe in themselves and, and have pride in, in their heritage, and, and, and we think we were successful with that. Now, an outgrowth of that, years later, after Ashley became an adult, I had that thought in my head. I said, you know, again, there are so many parents who've had to have that talk, and I just wonder how they have handled that. And some people may not know how to handle it, but I want to tell my story to others who who may be looking for a way to handle this in the future. So I actually wrote a book about it. The, the name of the book was It's What's on the Inside. And it's a very good uh, good story. It's a ch- it's a children's book with illustrations and um, if anybody's interested you can get it at Amazon or uh, barnesandnobles.com. It's What's on the Inside and it was a very very important part in her life and a very important part of my life. Okay, so I want to move on uh, from, we moved from, um, I left Texas in 1999. I said I had been on the school board from 1984 to 1999, and I moved out to, back to Mississippi to become the executive assistant to the president, Dr. Horace Fleming, the late Dr. Horace Fleming. And that was a that was an interesting time for me because I, I was going back home. I was going back to my alma mater. I was going back to my hometown. I had not lived in Hattiesburg since 1979, so I had gone back to visit quite often. But, but this is the first time going back to, to live and to work there. And, and that was a very, it was a short time I spent there. I only spent about three years there at Southern Mississippi, and partly because my, my boss, Dr. Horace Fleming, was basically fired. And the board gave him a, all the presidents in, in Mississippi had a, basically a four-year contract. And after his fourth year was up, they refused to extend his contract beyond the fourth year. They offered him a one-year contract. And of course, Dr. Fleming has so much integrity. He just said, you cannot lead with a one-year contract. So I declined that, that offer. So he ended up going back to Mercer University, where he was, he served as provost and went back to that position. But while I was in Mississippi, uh, there are some, uh, one of the things that I remember quite well was the flag vote in, in 2001. And that was when the voters in Mississippi were able to cast a vote and make a help make a decision about what to do with the Mississippi state flag, which had the Confederate flag in its in its, in its flag, an emblem of the Confederate flag, which again, to, to most black people in Mississippi and to some whites, it was very offensive because of what that flag represented and what it still represents today. But it was officially a part of the Mississippi state flag. So uh, some people got together and, and decided instead of the governor and, and, and the leadership making a decision like some governors around the state had done at that time was simply make a decision that, we're going to remove the flag we're going to change this flag because it's offensive to people well the governor of, of Mississippi and the speaker of the house and the uh, lieutenant governor who are the most powerful people in state government they decided they didn't want to they didn't want to make that decision they decided to punt they wanted to leave it up to voters to make that decision which i think was a a coward's way out uh, because they 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 wanted to have the political cover to say, whichever side came out as the winner, um, they could say, well, it wasn't our decision. It was the decision of the people. Well, that's why we elect people to uh, public offices to represent our views. You don't have to put everything that uh, comes before the legislature or before the governor. Uh, You don't have to make it a referendum. I think when you simply say, we're going to punt, we don't want to deal with this, that's that's a coward's way and, a, and an example of poor leadership. So at any rate, they, they planned this state referendum to allow voters uh, to decide which, whether or not to keep the, the, the state flag as it was. Now, keep in mind that I think these people knew what the outcome would be because they break down racially in Mississippi at that time, and it probably still is, but 65% white and 35% African American. And when the votes were finally tallied, guess what the percentage was? 65% of the voters wanted to keep the flag, and 35% wanted to change the flag, so the flag stayed. And of course, we know just this this year, uh, the legislature had another, um, I guess I can call it, a, a, they had this, this infusion of of conscience, where they they went ahead and finally made that decision to change the flag, and I was glad to see that. But that, but that was one of those times, and that was a throwback to the Jim Crow way of thinking in Mississippi. And I, I just, um, just marvel at how the the governor and the lieutenant governor and and the speaker of the house they knew the outcome, but they just wanted to take the coward's way out. So I again, I stayed there in in Hattiesburg and. Um, enjoyed being there until the new president came in and I had a really interesting time there in, in at Southern miss because I, I thought I, I knew I did a, a really good job as executive assistant to the president and um, part of my job when when they had a search for for dr. Fleming's replacement my job in fact the members of the Board of trustees asked me to take each candidate to their various, discussions with, with different constituent groups, and I felt honored that they thought enough of me to, to do that. When I was with each of the candidates, there were four candidates who came to campus, I told each of them that I wish you well, and if you are the person who is hired, I look forward to working with you. And each person uh, said they, you know, they sort of reciprocate and say, you know, thank you. I, I would look forward to look, to working with you as well. Well, as it turned out, that wasn't quite the way it worked because the person who got the job was an inside person. And one of his first, um, and he had told me, he said, yeah, Anthony, I've heard really good things about you. And I look forward to working with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of the first things he did after he became president was to fire me. And his his reason for firing me, he said, you are a Fleming man, which refers to Dr. Horace Fleming. And I can't have anybody who's a Fleming man working for me. I mean, he had, that, had just that much, I think, dislike for <laughs> Dr. Fleming. So I ended up leaving Hattiesburg. And it was, it was a, a very difficult time for me, uh, professionally and personally, because I felt as though this man was telling me to leave my own house because this was my hometown, this was my alma mater. And for I, I chalked it up to just for racial reasons that he did not want me as a part of his administration. Any new president coming in has the prerogative to appoint their own staff. That's very clear. But I think in this case, he simply wanted to make sure there were no black people in his administration, which he succeeded in doing. And I moved back to Texas in 2002. I was in Mississippi from 99 to 2002, just three years. And when I came back to Texas. I was I was at a loss. I was in a place I would never been before, uh, in the sense that I was unemployed. I had never in my life, um, since I was a teenager, I had never been unemployed. I had never been fired from a job. In fact, every job I that I had taken as a professional, I didn't really seek out that job. People recruited me. People asked me to apply. I went through a search process in many of those cases, but. It was clear they wanted me for the position, whether it's an administrative position or a faculty position. I felt that this was. It, it was just it represented my, um, my commitment to professionalism and my leadership and all of those things and, and and but when I, left Southern Mississippi and and came back to, Hattiesburg, I again was unemployed and just wondering what am I going to do here? I was, again, I was in a. I was lost. I'd never been down this road before. I didn't know, I didn't have a frame of reference. How do you, how do you recover from something like this emotionally and psychologically and financially? How do you, how do you deal with that? And that was, that was a tough, tough time for me. And it was also a time when I, I had to, uh, it it was a very spiritual time for me, quite a spiritual time for me, because as I said earlier, my career up to that point had been I would say it's equivalent to being on the mountaintop. Uh, I was being sought out. I was being recruited to work in various positions at different universities, and felt honored and humbled by that. Quite honestly, and and, and that was the equivalent of, of being on the mountaintop, not in an egotistical kind of way, but just in a reaffirming way that I was, I was doing something that uh, that people thought was being done quite well. But coming back to Texas, it was like going down in a valley. I, w- I was down in a place in the valley that I'd never been before. And, and I didn't know how to handle that. Uh, I, I, would, I would, again, as a spiritual time, and I would pray and say, God, you know, why, why is this happening to me? You know, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm trying to do all the things that you want me to do. I'm tithing. I'm doing all the things. But I, I couldn't even get a job um, in the public schools as a, as a, as a substitute teacher. I would go to the unemployment office and I'm sitting in this room with people who probably had some of them probably didn't have a high school education. I am sitting there with a doctorate degree. It makes no difference. We're all in there for the same reason, which is to find a job. And I was not able to find one there. So again, my down in that valley, I started asking God, you know, why why me? Why are you why why is this happening to me? I'm trying to do the right thing. And the and the answer to those prayers always came back was, Anthony. What makes you think that just because you're trying to do the right thing, that bad things can't happen to you? Um, that happens all the time. Uh, you've been on the mountaintop for a long time. Now you need to have a taste of the valley so you can appreciate those times when other people are in the valley and when, and when you're on that mountaintop, you can have a better appreciation for being up there as well. So I, I took that to to mean that that things were going to be okay, that there was a there was a purpose and there was a meaning and there was a reason that I was going through all of this. I didn't realize it all at the, at the at the moment it was going on, but it certainly was something that I had to, you know, God just said, you know, what makes you think that just because you're doing good things and bad things can't happen to you? You're, you're supposed to do those things anyway. You're supposed to tithe. You're supposed to be a good person and all of those things. Uh, I expect you to do that and, and just because you're doing those, don't, that does not mean that bad things can't happen to you. So I, I eventually took a position at uh, Sam Houston State University. I, I was, it was a very um, fortuitous moment uh, when I got a phone call from uh, a person in, on the faculty at Sam Houston who, with whom I went to, to school with, went to school in a doctoral program and he was now on the faculty in the counseling department at Sam Houston. And he was calling me for to get a reference on someone who had been applying for a job. And I gave that reference, gave a very positive recommendation for this person. And, and we got into a discussion about what I was doing. And I said, I'm unemployed. I'm looking for a job. And he said, would you be interested in coming to work here? I said, well, I don't really want to take this person's place. That wouldn't be ethical on my part to want to apply for a job that, that somebody else is applying for and has used me for as a reference. But he said, no, just send me your resume. Send me your Vita anyway. So I sent it to him. And he shared it with the, the chair of the department and, and the dean. As it turned out, the dean knew me, knew of me, but did not know me. I did not know her. But she happened to have been from Commerce. Um, that's where she was raised. And I think a mom was still there. And I was in the newspaper all the time, on the school board and other things that I was doing. And she basically said, if Anthony Harris wants to come work here, uh, we'll find a place for him. So I was very grateful to, to Dr. Genevieve Brown, who was Dean of the College of Education, and to, to Dr. Rick Brun, who was the faculty colleague who, who called me. And I was there for five years, and um, I won't say those were the best five years of my professional life. I was there as a faculty member, and uh, for the most part, enjoyed being there. But when the opportunity came to uh, go to Mercer University in um, 2008, I, I jump at that because Dr. Horace Fleming, who had been the president of Southern Miss when I was his executive assistant, as I said earlier, he had moved back to Mercer and he called me one day and asked if I would be interested in this a faculty position for a new doctoral program that they were starting at Mercer he said, Anthony, this will be right down your alley. It was a PhD program in higher ed leadership. And of course, I had all that higher, higher ed leadership experience, executive leadership experience. So I said, sure, I'd be happy to apply for it. And I applied for it and felt good about it. And um, I was invited for an interview, flew to Atlanta, interviewed with the search committee, interviewed with some students and some other people there on campus. And I, I just thought, okay, this, this is all the signs are uh, pointing in a positive direction. So I got a call from the dean of the College of Ed who said, we're ready to offer you a position. I said, great, I'm listening. And he made the the salary offer, and I was waiting for him to say, uh, I'm just kidding. But he wasn't kidding. <laughs> it was The salary was so... I would have had to take a significant cut in salary to leave um, Sam Houston to go to Mercer. So I said... I really can't at this point afford to uh, take that big of a pay cut." And I said, well, when, the, when your budget improves and you still want me, let's talk again. And we said, okay, then uh, about three weeks later, I got another call from Dr. Fleming who says, you know, has the dean been in touch with you? I said, no. He said, you'll hear from him in a few minutes. And about 10 minutes later, the dean calls and he said, we're ready to make another offer. And I said, I'm listening. and. This offer was still not what I wanted it to be, but it was much. It was a huge improvement over what they offered me, the first time. So I took the offer, moved to, uh, moved to Georgia, moved to Atlanta, uh, Mercer University. If you don't know about it, it's a private institution that started out as a Baptist institution, but is 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 considers itself now a liberal arts college, and the program. Their main campus is in Macon, Georgia, but the program where I taught was in, in Atlanta. So that's where I spent most of my time there in Atlanta. And I really enjoyed living in the city and really enjoyed uh, being a part of the, the culture and taking in and absorbing all of the culture of, that Atlanta has to offer. One of the first things that I noticed when I went to Atlanta was, again, 2008. And this was the first election for Barack Obama. And we went to vote. And I went into the voting arena where where this was taking place, and and I was just awestruck by the number of black people I saw in this room, and the number of black people voting, and the number of black people in charge of the voting process. And I had come from small town Mississippi, small town Texas, and that just wasn't the the image. That just wasn't the the uh, the optics that we we had back then. But going to Atlanta to see all of this was very, very affirming to me to say, you know, I, I'm really in a city where, where black people are doing great things. They're in charge and, and they are just really doing a, a wonderful job here. So that was just, uh, um, I, it, w- it was a great time for me to experience Atlanta in, uh, initially and then to be a part of that uh, wave of voters who brought Barack Obama to the presidency. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that, that happened in Atlanta, as much as it was a a progressive city and still is a progressive city. as People would tell me, and I found it to be true, there is Atlanta and then there's the rest of Georgia. Uh, Atlanta is a progressive city, but outside of Atlanta, you don't see much uh, indication of it being progressive. It's very conservative. But a couple of things happened while I was there that reminded me that even a city like Atlanta, Gwinnett County or DeKalb County, wherever I was living, they still have some issues of race, and I, 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 had, I encountered them. And, and one is kind of minor, but the other one was major. Let me just share those with you. Um, I was a member of a gym called LA Fitness, and really enjoyed being in that gym, met lots of great people and nice people. And um, the gym closed down for probably a month or so to for renovations. And for those of us who love being in the gym, it was, we had withdrawal symptoms, and we just were really anxious for this gym to reopen. And when it finally reopened, I went in, and they had made some improvements. But one of the things that I noticed, there were murals, paintings on the walls. And these were huge murals of people in, in different motions and exercising, uh, racquetball and bicycle riding, basketball, just just some action Photos that were blown up into mural size to be to be hung on the wall, and one of the things that was very conspicuous about all of these is that there were no black people represented on these, in these murals. And I thought, now that's an interesting that's an interesting picture there. I uh, Tried to get my wrap my head around here. I remember we we're in Atlanta, Georgia. This is a very uh, it's, a, it's a black town. It's a progressive town. It's 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 a diverse town in, in many ways. And somebody didn't think enough about that, and 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 didn't think enough to, to, about that to put up some some advertising, some some murals that would reflect that diversity. So, I said, I have a choice. I can just ignore it. Just go ahead and play racquetball or do whatever exercise. Get on the treadmill. Do, and I can just ignore this. But I could not ignore it, folks. I could not ignore it. So, I went to the manager and asked, why was this the case? And the manager said. This was corporate's decision to do that, and there was nothing. The local people did not make that decision because I, I had read someplace that that L.A. Fitness at one time uh, what was this was going on around the country where they were doing things to, in some ways, encourage more white people to join their, their gyms and 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 maybe make a sort of a disincentive for for black people to to join their gym. I'd read that somewhere. And I thought, this is a corporate decision where they they want all of these murals to reflect uh, white uh, members and and not those of color. So I ended up calling corporate and left a message and told them that I thought this was wrong. I think somebody needs to revisit that decision and and do something about it. So uh, it wasn't long after that, they shut the gym down for a few days and opened back up. And guess what, folks? there were murals of depicting black people riding bicycles and playing racquetball. It was a very diverse uh, set of pictures there. There were people of color. There were white people. There were uh, Asian people and Hispanic people. And I said, that's what we're talking about. That, that was something that, uh, and whether I, I was the reason they did it, I don't know. I'll take partial credit for it. I'm sure others may have made that same phone call. I don't know. We never talked to anybody about it but it was something that I wanted to do and I needed to do it. I'm, I'm so happy that I did do it. Another incident that happened there, I this was not long before I moved back to Texas. I was called for jury duty in Gwinnett County, uh, just outside of Atlanta. And the first time I had ever um, been called for jury duty, quite honestly, uh, as long as I've been a registered voter in Mississippi and Texas and in Georgia, this was the first time I had being called for jury duty, and I dutifully showed up for jury duty, and just as, if you've never, if you have gone to jury duty, you know what that's like. Everybody's in is in this huge room. We're all sequestered in this, this huge room, and they start calling names and numbers, and depending on how many cases they're going to um, pick a jury for, they divided us up into groups of 12. So my group of 12, we went into the Uh, the courtroom where uh, the case where we were, uh, that was assigned to our our jury. And I walked in and I noticed there was an African-American defendant. Uh, His lawyer was African-American and the prosecutor was white. And in my my group of 12, there were 10 whites and two black um, potential jurors. So as we sat in the jury box, the defense attorney and I think they call it voir d'air, I think. They, they go and they ask each person who is being in the jury box a series of questions to determine who's going to serve on the jury. And the other African-American uh, person was sitting on the same row. We were sitting on the, on the second row. And the prosecutor would go down and he would ask each person basically the same question, that is, what do you do for a living? Um, how long have you lived in this town? And can you be a fair and impartial juror? And people would answer affirmative and, and give good answers and positive answers to those questions. And he got to the second row. Of course, the defense attorney would do the same, and they would decide later who was going to be asked to leave and who would be asked to stay. And they came down to the second row, and, and they came to the, the black lady who was sitting a couple of seats away from me. And the district attorney or the prosecutor asked her, um, what did she do for a living? And she said, I don't work. I, I work from home and, and I cook and I clean. She's, and he said, that's all you do is you just stay home and watch television? She said, no, that's not what I said. I said, I cook and I clean and I'm studying for an exam to get into college. And he said, do you think you could be a fair and impartial juror? And she said, yes. He said, I want to ask you one more time. Do you think you can be a fair and impartial juror? Answer, yes, I think I can. Now I'm going to ask you one more time, ma'am. Do you think you could be a fair and impartial juror? Yes. Now keep in mind that up to that point, he had only asked that question once to the white jurors. They got to the black lady. He asked her three times, can you be a fair and impartial juror? She gave the answer all three times. So they came to me. And I, I guess they could tell from the way I was dressed. I was this college professor, and they weren't going to probably weren't going to keep me anyway. And I answered their questions, and the the judge said, uh, "Anything else before we move to the next uh, prospective juror?" And I said, "Excuse me, Judge. I just have to say this, and I know this is probably going to get me kicked off this panel, but I have to say it anyway." I said, "Anybody who was awake in this room." They know that prosecutor, this gentleman here, was unfair in asking this lady over here three times when he asked everybody else only once. And I think I just don't think that's right, Judge. And it was clear to me that he picked on this lady because, and, and, and I'm saying it's because of her race, that he picked on her and asked her questions differently than he asked everybody else. And I just don't think that's right. And of course, the prosecutor jumps up and he said, oh, no, 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 sir, I assure you that my... my um, my motivation had nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with race. And I looked over at the defense attorney and I think he gave me that look like, Man, I wish you hadn't said anything. I wanted you to be on that jury, but I said, I just have to say something, and I did. And sure enough, I was kicked off the jury panel. And um, and, and that's and as much as I wanted to be on that jury, I also knew that an injustice was taking place and I needed to I needed to say something. I, I don't think I could have walked away from that and, and felt good about myself. As we were leaving the courthouse, I I saw this lady and we were going up an escalator to, to leave the courthouse. And, and I told her, I said, ma'am, I hope you don't mind my saying what I said in there. And she, and tears were starting to well up in her eyes. And she said, sir, thank you so much for standing up for me. I really didn't know what to say. And, and it just broke my heart. And that, you know, she felt so powerless because she was being picked on because she was not working in, she was at home. His stereotype of her, she was some kind of lazy woman at home sitting on the couch watching the soap operas or something. That's this prosecutor's um, attitude that seemed to me. And and, and it was just, uh, again, one of those things that happened in Atlanta that you would think that would not happen in a city like that. But, indeed, it happened. Well, I'm going to stop here. I'm going to pick up on the next time, talk about uh, when I left um, Mercer University in 2015 and moved back to, to Texas, to Sam Houston State University for a second stint there in Huntsville, Texas. And uh, before I leave, I want to say one more time, I want to beg, I want to grovel, I want to plead, I want to urge, I want to do whatever I can so that you will go vote. And, and I know many of you listening to me have already voted, you plan to vote. Don't let this moment in history uh, pass you by. And, and I will go further and say, don't be on the wrong side of history when, when it's time to make a difference in our country. So next time, what I'm going to do is talk about my experience of going back to Sam Houston State University. And I'll just give you a preview of that. It was not the most pleasant time in my life. I worked in higher education for 45 years, and I will say the last five years of those 45 years that I spent at Sam Houston State University were the worst, the worst, bar none, the worst five years of my entire professional career. And one of the reasons I retired, it was just, it was, it was not a very pleasant experience for me. And I'll talk about that next time so you can have some idea of what, what that's about. Okay, that's my take for today Uh, and I'm just going to bid everybody a farewell stay safe out there and use your mask Uh, this pandemic is is very serious folks and you know just as much as I want you to vote I want you to be safe I want you to wear your mask take care of yourself I've had family members who have been affected by COVID-19 and and I think they'll be the first to tell you that uh, it's nothing to play with it's very serious despite uh, Donald Trump and others who say mask wearing is not is not necessary and that it's we've turned the corner on and all that silliness don't believe that this is a very serious illness a very serious infection and virus so uh, heed the warnings and be safe out there okay that's it we'll see you next time goodbye.